Duncan Rayburn and I guess it's fitting that we've been talking about going through conflicts and figuring out those conflicts using the tools of mimetic theory and the Enneagram because I've recently gone through a few conflicts. It is always good to see how theory fits in practice. I think one of the dangers of my proposal of an Enneagram of mimetic desire is that it becomes way too detached and unrealistic to actually be helpful. So, well, I just want all of you to know that I am really committed to presenting something that makes sense in life. And also, just to say, I have appreciated some of the feedback uh, that some of you have given me on what I've said so far. It's been wonderful to know that at least um, some of the things that we've been covering have been hitting home and helping you to figure yourselves out and, and uh, your relationships out. So far in this series, we've covered two principles, the principle of ressentiment and the principle of reciprocity. And in this episode, we're moving on to the third principle of the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire, namely the principle of limits, which is symbolized by points five and seven on the Enneagram, the two head types uh, whose response to fear ends up manifesting in two opposite tendencies. For fives, the tendency is to retreat from the world and to manage their own energy through developing a highly attuned perceptual awareness. For sevens, the tendency is to retreat from themselves and their inner world and to manifest an insatiable hunger for sheer possibility. What links these two types, apart from their position within the head triad and their relation to the emotion of fear, is the fact that both of these types are highly aware of limits. Fives are overly concerned with their own limits, in energy especially, and emotional resources. And sevens are overly concerned with the limits that the world wants to place on them. But both concerns easily distort a right relationship with limits. And I think that to misunderstand limitations in general is to misunderstand a fundamental aspect of our being as humans, as well as our relationship with the world and others. So let's look at this principle of limits in more detail. The principle of limits is basically the idea that everything, including every person, is finite and has edges. Language manifests this idea in the fact that words have definitions and meanings. The word chair doesn't equate to the word sadness, for example, nor does the word brother equate to the word tabulation. But even as language shows us, edges aren't always clear. Take the word run, for example. It's a simple word that we use rather commonly in English, but that simple three-letter word has approximately, and I kid you not, 400 different meanings. A horse runs a race, and a candidate runs for presidency, for example. And applying the first meaning of the word run to the second sentence results in a rather odd image of having a candidate winning the presidential race because of an ability to outlast anyone else on a treadmill. A machine runs, a ship runs aground, a driver runs a red light, water runs, experiments are run, and so on. The word run is finite, but its edges can be profoundly difficult to actually locate. Although this doesn't mean that the word has no limits. So, 
This is just a linguistic example, but it shows that the first thing to notice about limits is that they concern each of us as defined in our being. We may not necessarily fully understand precisely how to define ourselves, and any sane human being will probably wrestle with self-definition on many occasions during the course of a lifetime. Even grappling with the definitions of personality provided by the Enneagram can be a fairly unsettling experience, as many of you have told me. Still, it seems that we need to know at least two things. First, how we relate to our inner life, and second, where we end and where the world begins. To use metaphysical language, the question of my being belongs to me, just as the question of your being belongs to you, which means that we need to have a clear sense of mineness, that is, of what is mine and what is not mine. In other words, our being in the world concerns the question of ownership. This is not just in the shallow commercial sense of the word, but in the sense of what kind of stand we are going to take and need to take on what it means to be who we are. To misunderstand this sense of ownership that we have is to set up profoundly disastrous conditions for conflict. So allow me to explain why this misunderstanding happens and then why this causes conflict. Well, the central tenet of mimetic theory, the idea that our desires are copied, suggests that we are profoundly porous to the world. If you and I were to grab a cup of coffee somewhere and have a chat, we would be sharing a desire that would frame the entire scene. And the very nature of the conversation we would have would be unique to that particular frame. The conversation, though, would change if, say, you were having a conversation with someone else, or I was having a conversation with someone else, or we were in totally different settings with different people. An example of this is found in something rather sad and beautiful that C.S. Lewis wrote after the death of his friend Charles Williams. Uh, this is what he wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, that is Tolkien's, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. This is a profound observation which suggests something along the lines that every meeting with others is its own unique event, that our desires interweave to form a unique community of being, and taking one person out of that community of being creates a totally different community of being. This is, I think, one of the reasons why death is so immensely difficult to deal with. We don't just lose the person, we lose something of what that person brings to that community of being that we are in. When my grandfather passed away recently, my daughter, just on the cusp of turning four, looked at my wife as she explained what had happened and said, who is going to sit in great grandpa's chair now? She was talking about when we get together with the extended family and my daughter, in this incredible moment, just by referencing seating arrangements, recognized the utter gravity of the loss. The entire structure of the family has been irrevocably altered. And I guess what I'm getting at is 
that we misunderstand our edges because in a way we need to misunderstand those edges in order to function in the various communities of being that we are in. But there are two extremes that we need to avoid in this misunderstanding. The one is when we contract our edges to become less so that we don't have that much of an impact on the world. This is a, a very five-ish temptation. The temptation to become a bounded individual who doesn't ruffle any feathers, who doesn't have an impact and keeps their thoughts to themselves. But the other extreme is that we could expand our edges to the point of taking away from the presence of others. This is a very seven-ish temptation, which is basically to disregard boundaries completely. In these extremes, which manifest in different ways in all of the Enneotypes, conflict becomes inevitable because we all need space to be, given, of course, that to be means to be with others. And the person who contracts their boundaries too much is in a way not there, which means that others around them may feel alone even when they're in that relationship. They cannot be fully themselves because there's no other there with whom their desires can interweave. With the person who expands their boundaries too much, others might either push back or retreat, all from a sense that they cannot be fully themselves because there is too much of the other. Conflict happens at these extremes. If there is too much of you, I don't have space to breathe. If there is too much of me, you don't have the space you need. And the same applies that when there is too little of ourselves. Uh, the other day I was I just, I don't know, it was just a really bad day for reasons I won't go into, but I just said to my wife, I'm sorry that I ran out of me. I, I just, there, there's, I was totally depleted. A uh, very five-ish experience um, that I think some of you will relate to. So th the gist of what I'm saying is we need to hold space for each other. I'll get to a few points on, on what this means, but First, I want to look at a few ways that this plays out. Henry David Thoreau writes this hugely perceptive thing in his book Walden. It's very old-fashioned, but um, I think quite profound. He says, If anything ail a man so that he does not perform his functions, if he have a pain in his bowels even, for that is the seat of sympathy, he forthwith sets about reforming the world. It's a very strange quotation, but I think it gets at something rather brilliant. It's the idea that the man here has personal problems, but instead of seeing to those problems within himself, they're, they're his problems, he takes ownership of the wrong thing, the world, rather than himself. Instead of dealing with his own disquiet and existential angst, he sets about changing the whole world around him. In short, he has a misplaced sense of ownership. He makes his problem the world's problem. And in doing that, the world's real problems are overlooked. And his real problems are overlooked too. But there is also the opposite tendency in people. And I'm sure that some of you will relate to this tendency, which is that some people take ownership of problems that don't belong to them. In both tendencies, again, there is a misunderstanding of limits that tends to those extremes that I just mentioned. And the direct result of this misunderstanding of limits is a misallocation of ownership and therefore also of responsibility. In one instance, which is a very seven-ish tendency, the world is reformed, but the self is left unchanged. In the other instance, a more five-ish tendency, the self might be changed, but the world is left unaffected. 
So what do we do about all of this? Well, it's good to keep in mind that creating overly strict divisions between ourselves and others is really not possible. That's something that mimetic theory teaches us. But I do think it is possible to draw up better boundaries for ourselves. I'm going to cover this probably too briefly, but my hope is to at least get to the essence of what we need to consider. The core principle that I'm going to work with is that of need, which is, of course, at the heart of understanding the Enneagram in general. Most of us tend to be fairly unaware of what we actually need because we get caught up in wrong-headed desires instead. This is something I've already explained in this series. One way to locate our deeper needs is to pay attention to emotion. Not just emotion in general, but to the emotion behind what people are saying and doing. To work through and resolve any conflict, we need to figure out what we and others are feeling. Most of us are pretty terrible at this. I'll take a very five-ish example. The five is likely to say something like, I feel misunderstood. Trouble is, this isn't really a feeling. There might be a feeling in there somewhere, but being misunderstood is not really an emotion. And until the emotional impetus behind something can be located, the problem will just persist, and the precise limit of the self won't be found. The eight might say, I feel betrayed, but betrayal isn't an emotion either. One of the heart types, a two or a four, might say, I don't feel like I'm enough. Again, that's not an emotion. It's actually a surprising thing that even twos and fours, who are possibly the most in touch with their emotions of all the types, misinterpret their emotions all the time. And so they're likely to miss the deeper significance of their personal limitations. So it really helps just to work with basic labels and then, if you like, get into some of the nuances. When you are unsettled, it's worth asking, are you apathetic, angry, disgusted, fearful, horrified, sad? If things are going well, are you surprised or happy or awestruck? If the seven gets told that she's got to meet that deadline or else, the seven in question may express something like, I feel trapped. But since trapped is not an emotion, maybe it'll be helpful to get to the core issue. Is it fear, maybe? Is there fear there because that deadline looks like the death of all future joy? <laughs> the Enneagram is profoundly helpful here. Every type has formed in response to one dominant emotion. Anger for gut types, fear for head types, and shame or anxiety for heart types. Very interestingly, shame and anxiety are often very closely linked. Often when you're not too clear on what you're feeling, but you know your enneotype, it actually helps to ask how that core emotion might be present. In knowing this, you're pretty well on your way to locating your limits, at least what you need in terms of some limits. If that seven I just mentioned feels fearful by having her options limited, she will be greatly comforted to recognize the freedom within the boundary rather than merely apart from it. She won't push back the boundary completely, but will start to see there, that maybe there is some joy within the boundary. The boundary is, in fact, the boundary of a playground. It's not the end of the world. But also, pay close attention to the emotion indicated at your heart point or point of integration, because that may offer you a pretty good clue um, as to what your other needs might be. As a five, I tend to get angry very, very seldom. It was actually pretty horrifying to realize I'm supposed to integrate to eight. 
which even now when I think about it, looks like the biggest jump on the Enneagram. It's a bit like telling Franz Kafka that he, he is secretly Godzilla, and that his metamorphosis isn't into a pathetic insect, but something more like changing from Bruce Banner into the Hulk. But what I started to see when I started to grapple with this is that my five-ish need is to recognize that underneath my tendency to want to retreat from the world is a failure to locate my anger. And that's a really important thing to be able to do because anger sets up boundaries. I also learned that my fear, which is also pretty well buried by the way, is often a response to a failure to recognize my ability to act when it is called for. I don't need to retreat all the time. I can actually just call out the boundary that is needed and then affect some kind of actual change in the world. Is this difficult to do? Yes. But is it good? Yes, it's certainly a better way to go than, than merely just retreating. Let me add to this that I don't think we always default to that baseline emotion in our Enneagram triad. I'm not at all trying to say that we are merely predictable puppets of our type, but Rather that one of the functions of the Enneagram is to help us to ask questions about how we are currently relating to the world and each other. All emotions, and it's funny that I'm speaking about emotion in relation to two of the types that are generally pretty rubbish at locating their emotions, all emotions have a message. I would highly recommend, I have done so before, uh, but I don't mind mentioning it again, Carla McLaren's book, the language of emotions. It is a profoundly illuminating read. So let's just run through a few examples. Anger, this is in the gut triad, tells us that a boundary needs to be set up between the world and us. Shame, this is in the heart triad, obviously tells us that a boundary needs to be set up between us and the world. Fear, in the head triad, tells us that we need to pay attention to where we are and what's going on around us. Sadness, which is for all of us, including sevens, tells us that we need to let something go. Delight, again, something that is for all of us, including fours, tells us to be present, but to hold our hands open enough not to cling to this one particular good experience that we're having. Then, in addition to the core principle of need, and specifically recognizing need, I would add another one, which is gratitude. I think our limitations can pretty easily give rise to immense fear at the thought of our helplessness before infinite chaos, but I think gratitude is the more reasonable and the more helpful response. So if you're caught in a moment of existential dread as you contemplate the horror of your eventual demise, you might give in to the fear of all the unknowns that accompany that, or instead you can turn your attention in gratitude to the good that you have access to now. In times of great suffering, I get how hard this can be, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. The point is to pay close attention to the ratio between your expectations and the realities you are faced with. This ratio often gets distorted where our expectations are too high and the reality is such a disappointment as a result. It's better to respond to situations with at least some awareness of gratitude. Conflict situations are very quickly transformed when you can locate what you're grateful for. Let's say someone is treating you badly, and maybe, maybe it's an impossibly difficult situation, something like abuse. Well then, 
Gratitude isn't going to be for the terrible thing you're going through. Rather, it's going to be for surrounding things. Maybe the fact that you are more attuned to what is valuable than you were once, or that you have a sense of the importance of making a decision uh, to step away if you can. Gratitude can be even for the mere fact that everything passes. The pain, the struggle will not go on forever. In relationships, I've found often the expression of gratitude can calm a conflict down very quickly. In the midst of a tirade with someone, even if your emotions are boiling, and I get how hard this is, tell that person you're grateful for them and grateful that you can figure out a way forward with them. State an intention to get beyond the, the terrible conflict or the, 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 the violent speech. Tell them that you're on their side, that you want what is best for them and best for the relationship itself. A few years back, in one of the nastiest experiences I've ever had in a work situation, I got to try this out. And it didn't solve all the problems, but it played a huge part in allowing a quarrel to turn into a discussion, which was exactly what was needed. In anger, we expand ourselves into the world. We push back. We want to overrule the other person or even the world itself, which is a particular danger for ones and eights, by the way. But gratitude sees things more clearly. It allows others to be who they are, and it allows us to be who we are. As we work towards a close, I just want to quickly discuss a notion that has been around since the dawn of philosophy, but which Carl Jung applied to human psychology, namely enantiodromia. It's a very cool word. Uh, it's the basic idea is that things, when they are pushed to an extreme, turn into or become their opposites. In part, this explains the genesis of each type. What is repressed or disavowed gives rise to each enneotype. But I want to talk about this idea in terms of mimesis and the question of limits. One of the strangest things about um, human interactions is that often over-asserting a limit quickly results in the infringement of that limit. And there are also implications which I'll get to for understating a limit. I know a particular Enneotype 1 who is obsessed with rules. Everything has rules. She reminds me of the Lacanian dictum that if God is dead, then nothing is permitted. Everything has to be prescribed and delineated. The terrible result of this overstatement of a, a limit is that she sets herself up as the rival to so many people. And, and everyone kind of unconsciously and instinctually wishes to contravene the rules that have been dished out so very liberally to them. So she's, she's this very kind and well-meaning person, though I have on many occasions witnessed the damage that she does to her relationships by over-asserting the boundary. The boundaries are there to protect the relationships, and yet they do harm. From her one-ish perspective, she is right, and everyone is wrong. But through my five-ish lens, I would say, say that even though she has a fair point or two to make, hers is not the only perspective in the room, and sometimes there is a failure to recognize the arbitrariness of the rules that have been set up. I mention this specifically in relation to this idea of extremes that I've been talking about. Extremes turn into their opposites. If you contract your boundary too much to prevent others from invading, you're inviting invasion. Fives, you know what I'm talking about. 
And if you fail to recognize the value and joy of limits, here's looking at you, sevens, the world will retreat from you. The middle ground is difficult to maintain, but it's really worth trying to find a balance, even if the balance isn't perfect. So as we close off, I just want to offer a few questions that you can ask if you are mediating a difficult conflict or if you are in a conflict of sorts of your own. Um, and the questions are as follows. First, where do you think a healthy limit is needed? By the way, the, this question is easy to ask when things are just out of balance and you've noticed that things are not going well. So it's pretty easy to, to figure out when you need to ask that question. Second, in what way are limits being pushed to extremes? The purpose of asking that question is to figure out if, if the limit is being overstated or understated. Third, what needs and feelings are being announced by people that might help you to locate the relevant limits? And fourth, in what way can everyone involved be grateful for something, even if that something is the person that they're arguing with right now? Obviously, these questions need to be taken in the light of the other questions that I've been posing uh, in previous episodes and the ones that I will pose in later episodes. And that is what I have for you right now. In the next episode, we're moving on to the principle of mediation, which is symbolized by Enneotypes 3 and 9. Type 6s, by the way, get a whole principle on their own, which um, I will get to after the next episode. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. Do remember that there is a Patreon page that you can support this podcast at. Uh, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. You are also welcome to email me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Duncan Rayburn. Uh, I will put links to all of these things in the show notes. Look after yourselves. Cheers for now. Cheers for now.